Today is January 16th. Welcome to Native Calgarian Oki Naganago Mikoche Chesakom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south and the opposed US Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations of the Stony Nations, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me in my Red Road journey. Elder Wright Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name, which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian. I am a daughter of the Mayflower a daughter in the American Revolution, while having an Indian Act and Post status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Kinchotine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk the Red Road. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and you can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps whichever medium you are listening from. I have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe. You can go to nativecalgarian.com for all the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. So today I wanted to talk actually about the Métis book club that we had, it was uh, volume three of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And um, we had recorded it, but um, when I do our book club, I try to create a safe space for Indigenous people to share so that uh, settlers can learn from us. And we had a wonderful uh, participant who was Métis, who um, in the end um, felt that she would rather her voice not be um, recorded and uh, put publicly. And obviously we wanna uh, create that safe space. And uh, it was a, a wonderful moment where she said that she realizes she has more healing to do. We had zero men in our book club again. Uh, so, you know, it, it's uh, disappointing to see the lack of male representation, uh, I guess, willingness to wanna learn. Maybe uh, if you are listening and you are male, I'd love to hear from you. Maybe send me a comment to let me know um, if you 
ever attended our book club, if you ever want to attend, if you um, enjoy the book club content that I put here, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, the whole purpose of me sharing the book club is the hopes that everyone learns something and also people who may have questions can um, ask from there. Also, um, I think it's really important we can't, we can't have reconciliation without truth. And uh, we're not talking about reconciliation. We don't have like national um, conversations. We don't have, uh, you know, national book clubs. As far as I know, I'm the only one. And uh, we started in 2016, so 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. So we're about to have our sixth anniversary. Holy. Um, and yet, despite that, despite that, um, us doing this, one of our regulars had made the comment that um, they were really shocked that the Métis experience would somehow be different than First Nation. And in in a in a one way, it felt like we were still being you know put together in one um, concept, which is uh, not true because you know we have. Um, different First Nations all across the country, over 600. We have um, Anglican, we have United, we have Catholic churches that were all part of the residential school experience. So you're, we're never going to have like a, the exact same experience by anyone. And I thought it was really important for us to discuss this particular book again. So um, for those who don't know uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, while it has 94 calls to action that we've made super small for everybody to be able to just read them, the truth is they deserve um, more. And ironically, people talk about Canadian history, yet here is a whole volume set of Canadian history that's just being disregarded by not just our curriculum, but by people who claim to care so I thought, um, you know, it would be important if I can't uh, repost the particular episode that we had recorded, that I would talk a little bit about it as if we were having the book club again. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to do a podcast with me discussing a book, I would be very honored and happy to do that, um, especially ones that we had already read. I don't mind um, going through them if you have comments or questions or, or you just absolutely love a book and we want to discuss it further so uh, one I invite you to come to our book club you know uh, really personal things are shared in them uh, by Indigenous people we allow Indigenous people to speak first uh, because colonial settlers have always had the narrative and then second of all I encourage folks uh, who you know, maybe it's the timing you just can't um, come every second Monday across the country, that's fine. Uh, maybe create your own book club. So uh, one of our regular members, uh, Kat, has started the Settler Book Club here in Calgary. And the concept was to start unpacking a lot of that racism. Um, they include a lot of uh, Black authors as well, because Truth and Reconciliation Commission Call to Action 58 actually calls upon all um, folks to do anti-racism training, everyone. So I think that they are actually fulfilling that by doing that work. And um, I think it's important, uh, February is coming up and that's Black History Month. And I had a few of my Black friends point out that 
they're not doing last minute bookings. If you're not calling them now to book for them for February, then uh, they will consider it an insult that you had chose not to wait last minute to book them and have them come talk to you. Uh, that said, I don't speak for black people. I just encourage you to uh, follow maybe some of the retweets that I share of their voices. And of course, not just follow black voices, but if you don't have black friends, as one comedian pointed out, then uh, that might be a bit of the problem right there with you needing to unpack some of your own personal racism. And, um, you know, I, I did my last podcast today with my friend James, who experienced some awful anti-Indigenous bias by people who thought they were uh, allies. And uh, I keep trying to unpack what that means, just as you may, um, you know, not have Black friends. Well, if you have no Indigenous friends, are you really our ally? If you are unaware of who your local Indigenous activists are, are you really our ally? If you're not including them, are you really our ally? And if you see them on the street, especially after they've given you training and you don't know who they are, you don't recognize them, I think your anti-Indigenous bias is a lot stronger than you might think and you should consider unpacking it. Um, now, I say that as somebody who was raised in this white supremacist society that had to do a lot of that unpacking to uh, the Black community, I was lucky enough to participate in a, in a panel discussion and one of my other panelists talked about uh, racism against the Asian community as well as um, sex work. And, you know, I learned from that. So anti-racism training is for everybody. It's not something that's just like only for white people or only for settlers. It is for everybody. And, um, and, and I've encouraged many times in my podcast that everybody unpack lateral violence. That's that internalized racism for women, even if you're white, unpacking that internalized sexism because we live in a, in a society that really um, diminishes any other voices and makes those who are not the straight white male diminished. So we all have to practice this. This is something we all have to work on. It's not something for one demographic. It's just that one demographic has a hell of a lot more work to do than some of the other dem demographics. So anyway, let's get back to the purpose of today's podcast, which is to talk about the Métis experience of the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This is volume three and it's available online for free. And it's actually so itty bitty tiny. And um, Yet, despite that, it has so much truth to it that I absolutely wanted to share some of those with you. And I also want to reference two other books as I discuss this. Now, those of us are those of you who have listened to my podcast know that in July, I actually had um, uh, one of the folks, one of the authors who were a part of this book. It's really hard to see with the reflection that I have going on from my lamp. Um, Restoring the History of St. Paul de Métis. I apologize for my French folks. Um, understanding the Métis Perspectives. Um, you know, I found this to be a really good book to read over about what uh, concepts of reconciliation are today in present day and uh, some of the history that they were able to find, you know, lost perspectives. Um, 
that they were able to put together some pictures here that were put together. Um, it's really important that uh, people understand the gravity of this book because it's regularly referenced this place and this experience in the uh, Métis TRC book. And, um, and so having that background, now I'm going to reread my uh, Restoring the History of St. Paul Métis with a different lens as a result. Um, you know, we read uh, Maria Campbell's Half Breed quite some time ago, and that was a wonderful book. I highly recommend for Métis experience, because again, I, I am set to Dene, I'm not Métis, and um, I, uh, I strongly recommend it. Another book I highly recommend is um, this one, the Canadian Geographic Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada. There's one for Métis, Inuit, and First Nations, and um, in this, it talks about some of the history of script that I thought was really important for this conversation today. Um, another conversation I, I do in my land acknowledgement, I actually talk about the founding uh, five Métis that were so instrumental in the 20s, 30s, 40s of creating the uh, Métis Settlement Act, the Betterment Act, so that the uh, Alberta is one of the only provinces that have um, recognized Alberta Métis settlements. And um, that's a part of my land acknowledgement teachings because when people talk about um, recognizing the traditional territory of the Métis, that's very controversial to be saying in Blackfoot territory. And for anyone who's done any history on the Métis, they would understand why, why that's, you know, an, an Edmonton further north conversation to be having. So, um, you know, if, if you haven't taken my land acknowledgement training, uh, that's fine. I encourage folks to just research it. If you can't afford to uh, hire me or just the timing doesn't work, this information is publicly available. It's not something that is like hidden. It's just that I think folks are unaware and continue to be unaware. And folks who even claim to be our ally after you know years of doing this anti-racism work are still unaware that a whole demographic of people called the Métis are experiencing Indian residential schools differently. So um, I wanted to bring up uh, the the last book that I had talked about because it, it actually spoke about script um, actually a lot more extensively, which would give people some history about um, some of the terminology of script, road allowance, people, etc. if they don't understand the Métis experience. And um, it's interesting kind of reading this because, uh, you know, it, the Red River resistance like that, I, I don't understand why Manitoba and Saskatchewan specifically by the Tosh don't have uh, more like recognized settlements by like land surveyors, but regardless, um, it's, uh, it's, an, it's a really important information for everybody to be reading and understand the gravity of uh, the aftermath of 1885, because it's really specific in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well. So um, this book is something every single Canadian family should own, along with the rest of the Atlas. And this was actually generously donated to me by one of my allies who was a part of our book club until he, uh, they had to move away um, to teach in another country even. 
so I miss him a lot and I don't know if he'd appreciate me calling him out but you know for what if you are listening know that what you donated to me was really appreciated and, um, as one of the male voices that was at our book club you were missed there too so um, so again if you haven't read this book I highly recommend it as well. Um, you can go back to my podcast and YouTube channel and see this if you haven't. And then lastly, let's get to the actual book that we're trying to get uh, discussed here. So ironically, the first thing I did was learn from it in the first uh, bit here because, uh, fun fact about Michelle, she loses her glasses all the time like if you don't see me online it's because i've lost my glasses again so anyway i found an old pair of glasses and it's really i'm really struggling <laughs> i'll get my glasses in order here soon um so uh interestingly enough um my granny's um first name or uh residential school was listed right away in the second paragraph so i'll just read it to you Canada's residential school system was a partnership between the federal government and the churches. When it came to the Métis, the partners had different, uh, differing agendas. Since the church wished to convert as many Aboriginal children, and indeed as many people as possible to Christian, Christianity, they had no objection to admitting Christ, or, uh, Métis children to the boarding schools they established in the 19th century. Métis children were, for example, among the first children enrolled in the school at Fort Providence in the Northwest Territories. Métis children were also uh, many of the mission schools that were established throughout the West. In one case, the present Métis children at uh, Catholic missions was a matter of disappointment. And I apologize to anyone who hears that. Um, that is so awful and disrespectful. And uh, you know, it, but a sign of the, that time of, of you know, anti-Indigenous hate, colonialism, and enforcing Christianity on people, right? Um, French-born um, Maurice came to Canada in the 1800s, 1880s, in, in the hopes of working with exotic Indians, only to find that their students at the mission British Columbia were Métis. The church has never stopped their interest in providing residential schooling to Métis children. The Anglicans, for example, opened up hostels for Métis children in the Yukon in the 20s and 50s. And in Alberta, Catholic-owned residential schools maintained a high enrollment of Métis students. Um, at the end of this podcast, I'll also give the uh, Hope for Wellness helpline for folks who hear these awful, disrespectful statements and know that's not you and I, if it's triggering, we will um, put that out there again. So uh, interestingly enough, um, so for folks who don't understand, uh, First Nations were considered a federal responsibility and Métis at this time were not yet quite in that same lumped jurisdiction. So that's why many Indigenous leaders fought really hard with Métis for rights for decades because it was never properly um, recognized until the, the constitution of 82, in which it was Métis that really, really pushed for non-status and Métis to have rights. Um, as provincial governments slowly began to 
provide increased educational services to Métis students after the Second World War. Métis children lived in residence and residential schools that were either run or funded by provincial governments. The Métis experience is an important reminder of the impact of residential schools extends beyond the formal residential school program that Indian Affairs operated. The history of these provincial schools and the experiences of Métis students in these schools remain to be written. In other words, there was so much difference that, and it never got properly documented, and that is one of the biggest criticisms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but that was their mandate. Their mandate was to exclude. So um, by them even including this book, I think is incredible. And um, I don't know if I'm going to read this part uh, again, but basically what had happened was because there is a difference between the provincial and federal jurisdictions. There began to be fighting over uh, who should be funding for these children to be attending these schools. And the provinces did not want to pay for uh, federal Indians. And then uh, the federal government did not want to be paying um, for Métis when they are provincial jurisdiction. And ironically, you know, Alberta wasn't even a province until 1905. So all of these children were being forced into these schools um, anyway. So there was a change in the policies about residential schools when the 1885 uh, rebellion had happened. And it was at that point that, and it's written in this book, that they had seen, the, the government had seen Métis as problematic, um, possibly treasonous and violent. And it's the way they are written about throughout this entire book really shows how disrespectful the governments were towards the uh, Métis throughout the entire history of setting up Canada. And um, as a result, they were um, sometimes a misjurisdiction altogether. So for example, at one point in time, um, if they were not paying, um, okay, let's back up, script. I talked a little bit about the other books, script, and script was land that they were supposed to receive but they quickly, the Canadian government quickly kicked off all the Métis off of the, the land that they were given in order to make way for the settlers. And the settlers took that land. So a lot of Métis were pushed onto the road allowances. And the road allowances are the space in between um, two quarter sections of land that um, are supposed to be four roads, but at that time they weren't fully developed yet. So a lot of Métis lived on road allowances. And because they lived on road allowances, they weren't necessarily paying provincial sales or provincial tax. So then the province said, well, if you're not paying tax and your children can't attend their schools. So um, the experience was very different compared to uh, First Nations where there was no question the treaties had said that um, all First Nation children deserve an education. And um, their idea of an education was obviously assimilation camp uh, rooted in genocide. So, um, you know, problematic across the board. So these were um, distinctive issues that were distinctive to Métis that I'm sad Canadians still don't understand the difference between the different First Nations, the different um, groups of Indigenous, and, uh, and that the Métis experience was so drastically different because they weren't considered federal responsibility yet. Um, 
so there were some some really great points here that I thought were important to um, incorporate. One of the most significant of these Métis nations of Alberta, Métis memories of residential schools, a testament to the strength of Métis. So there are some wonderful books out there now about uh, the Métis experience in residential school. And I think it's, uh, it's imperative we all read it and understand the difference between um, the different experiences because my grandma, my, my aunt, my uncle, they obviously are going to have a very different experience as First, First Nations as opposed to uh, the Métis. Um, some other parts. During the one epidemic, birds thought, bird thought the sisters could hardly have slept when everyone is, was in bed, the sisters carried up big jars of hot drinks for the kids to drink and prevent sickness and complications. Um, a variety of rules were in place to guard the uh, students' morals. morals. Um, Bird could recall getting in trouble for whistling. They used to say, I was calling the devil, which is ironic because a lot of um, folks believe, especially pre at night, you never whistle because you bring in dark spirits. Um, they used to say that I was calling the devil. Permission was required to attend weddings and funerals at the local Anglican church. When one girl wrote a letter uh, to a newly arrived brother, she was quickly expelled at the insistence of the bishop, even though she was an orphan with no money and no place to go. So just the widest variety. While her memoir often described the nuns and priests of Fort Chippewan as very strict, her overall assessment was one of gratitude and understanding. She credited them with saving her life and teaching her all she knew in both practical and spiritual terms. She also thought their lives were hard and difficult, as was the students. After working all day, they slept in the dorms with the children. They didn't have their own rooms, just big white curtains like a small white square around their bed. They could hear everything all night and got up to take care of the children who cried because they were sick, cold, or had a bad dream. Some of them came from schools and homes where they saw lots of meanness and punishment. They thought it was the best way. They got scolded badly by their superiors too when the kids did wrong, so they had to be strict. Maria Campbell was born in 1940 to a Métis family and that had fled to the Spring River, 50 miles northwest of Prince Albert after the Northwest Rebellion of 1885. The community members had originally made their living as hunters and trappers. When the land was opened to homesteading in the 1920s, many of them attempted to farm in an effort to hold at least a little bit of land. Lacking both experience and capital, most of them was not able to fulfill the requirement to break a specified number of acres within three years. Their land was taken over by new settlers and they retreated to shacks on road allowances and 30 foot wide strips of government owned land on either side of the road. Despite ever present poverty, Campbell was a literate household. Her mother read to the children from the works of Shakespeare, Dickens, Sir Walter Scott and poet Henry Wa uh, Wadsworth Longfellow. Her mother or her grandmother had treaty status and had been raised in a convent. And one of her great grandmothers, uh, Cheechum, was related to Métis military leader, 
Gabriel Dumont. The family members were regular Catholic churchgoers. Mass was held in Lancet and French and sometimes in Cree. The colorful rituals that were only one thing that made the church bearable for me. I was spellbound by the scarlets and purples and even the nuns whom I disliked as persons were mystical and haunting in their black robe with huge swinging crosses. Campbell's life un underwent a dramatic change when she was seven. One evening at dinner, a granny announced that she had arranged a special surprise for Maria, that she had been accepted into a residential school in Saskatchewan. It sounded exciting, but it, looking at my dad's shocked face, mom's happy one, and Chicham's stony expression, a sure sign of anger, I was confused. Dad went out after dinner and did not return until the next day. Meanwhile, Mama and Granny uh, planned my wardrobe. I remember only the ugly black stockings, woolly and very itchy, and a little red tam that I wore and how much I hated it. Of her one year at that school, she recalled um, little except loneliness and fear. The place smelled unpleasant of soap and old women, and I could hear my footsteps echoing through the building. We prayed endlessly, and I cannot recall ever doing any reading or schoolwork as Mama said I would, just prayers and my job, which was cleaning the dorms and hallways. I do recall most vividly a punishment I once received. We were not allowed to speak Cree, only English and French, and for disobeying this, I was pushed into a small closet with no windows or light and locked in for what seemed like hours. I was almost paralyzed with fright when they came to let me out. I remember the last day of school and the sense of freedom I felt when dad came from me. He promised that I would never have to go back as a school was being built at home. She quickly discovered that the public school was not a very welcoming place for Métis students. Campbell's classroom was divided by race with Euro-Canadians on one side and Métis on the other. Campbell recalled that we had a lot of fights with the white kids and finally after beating them soundly, we were left alone. Mealtimes underscored the difference between the two groups of children. They had white brown bread, boiled eggs, apples, cakes, cookies, and jars of milk. We were lucky to have those even at Christmas. We took bannock for lunch, spread with lard and filled with wild meat. And if there was no meat, we had cold potatoes and salt and pepper or what other uh, roasted gophers with sage dressing. No apples or fruit. If we were lucky, there was jam sandwich for dessert. One of the teachers alternated between bursts of cruelty, often ridiculing Métis children for their errors, followed by the guilty pleasure or gestures of kindness. At one point, Campbell, overcome with shame about her ancestry, went home and called her parents no good half-breeds. Her grandmother walked her away from the house, and then after talking to her about her attitude, she beat Campbell and told her, I will beat you every time I hear you talk as you did. If you do not like what you have, then stop fighting your parents and do something about it yourself. And she walked back home. James Gladstone, a future Canadian senator, attended both St. Paul's, the Eglinton um, boarding school on the Blood Reserve and the Calgary Industrial School in Alberta in the earliest 20th century. Born in 1887, he was raised at uh, Mountain Mill near Pincher Creek in what is now Alberta. 
by his parents, Harriet and William Gladstone. William, a non-Aboriginal man, had been born in Montreal in 1832 and worked in the uh, North American West from 1849 or 1848 onwards. He married uh, Harriet LeBlanc, a Cree woman, in 1855. Many of their children became Catholics, but William Gladstone remained a staunch Protestant throughout his life. One of their daughters, also named Harriet, lived with a non-Aboriginal man, James Bowles, for a number of years. She gave birth to four children, one of whom was James Gladstone. Because James' father was non-Aboriginal, James grew up without status under the Indian Act. Despite this, he attended two residential schools. His presence in those schools is clear evidence of the fact that despite the shifting government policy on funding and, admiss and admission, many non-status children still attended residential schools. There's so much more I want to read, but obviously, um, you know, I, I just hope and encourage folks to really considering reading it. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to continue. In, in 1903, he transferred to the Calgary Industrial School over the objection, oh, objections of his principal. He went to Calgary to learn carpentry, but since there was no carpentry instructor, he was put to work in laundry and kitchen. Eventually, he was to do work in the school print shop, which he produced the magazine of the local Anglican diocese, as well as the other church-related publications. There, he trained as a typesetter, and according to his memoir, seldom went to classes. Student revolt was precipitated by a school laundress complaint that a pair of her moccasins had disappeared. The principal put all the boys, including Gladstone, who was recovering from typhoid fever on a bread and water diet until someone confessed to the theft. In protest, the students went on strike and took to begging for food on the streets of Calgary, returning to the school only to sleep. Eventually, 25 of them, including Gladstone, struck out of their homes. After walking 40 kilometers, they stopped at a Cree camp where the mounted police caught with them. The police took them to the barracks of Okotoks and fed them, and the runaway boys organized a football game. The boys uh, returned to the school by train the next day. Soon after their return, the laundress found the moccasins in her room under a stack of magazines. When he finished school, Gladstone uh, returned to the Blood Reserve. In 1920, at the age of 33, he was granted status under the Indian Act and had married Janie Healy, a Ghanai woman and his application for status in the support of the local residential school principal Middleton and the local Indian agent at the local First Nation leaders. Um, chapter two goes into uh, the school system from 1883 to 1910 when they still really looked down um, on the Métis as troublemakers. So um, I highly recommend reading this. Oh, and they talk about the problem with treaty, etc. And then it goes back into referencing St. Paul de Métis, uh, which, you know, again, I highly recommend reading. Boarding schools should be erected where the half-breed children can be kept and cared for, doing away the difficulties uh, that have baffled the most strenuous efforts. The half-breeds themselves vividly realize their in incapacity in which they are with regard 
regarding the giving of good education to their children. And they strongly desire that boarding girls can, boarding schools be established and their children kept within from every part of the Northwest inquiries are made to the effect in an attempt to have the half breeds send their children to the boarding schools erected on Indian reserves. But as this scheme of sending the half breed children to the boarding school, Indian boarding schools can not be adopted without great inconvenience. The only way to solve the question would be to establishing a boarding school exclusively for half breed children. The, um, there was a, a requested grant of $72 per, per uh, student in lobbying the Indian Affairs Minister Clifford Stiffman for support for the school and the colony in general uh, portrayed the Métis as a potential social menace. A day will, will come and this day is nearer at hand than one would fancy when the government shall have to spend a large amount of money to build jails and assure the security of law-abiding citizen against lawless of the poor destitute half-breed rendered remorseless by the continuous spectacle of poverty and self uh, de degradation. Racist. <laughs> anyway, um, it really shows how they still see them as problematic, um, which is so gross. Anyway, it goes back uh, the fire about a fire that had killed a student and um, soon became apparent that the St. Paul de Métis was to become the destination for these non-Métis settlers. Um, and in 1990, 1909, sorry, the colony was open to the general set settlement. Uh, the attempt to establish a Métis colony had failed. It's just it's such an incredible uh, ride. Chapter three, 40 years of haphazard policy from, 19, from 1899 to 1937. Um, like, I, I wish I could possibly explain um, how much you learn. The lack of educational opportunities for Métis children on the prairies led to Métis political leader Malcolm Norris to observe, it is, I have always understood that it is against the law not to send children to school and inspectors are maintained this very purpose, but unfortunately our people have been discriminated against and to such an extent that even though they may pay taxes. No steps are taken by the authorities to see that their children are sent to schools. Apparently the half-breed is not worth caring about. And those who took my land acknowledgement teaching know that Malcolm Norris is one of the founding five of the Métis settlements, one of the great um, advocates for the Métis. Um, oh, and then the paragraph after they talk about James Brady, uh, Felix Callahu, and uh, Peter Tompkins. Uh, representing non-status Indians and Métis and lobbying the government. They were just absolute heroes of their time. And of course, we don't even discuss it. Um, now, I can't say this French word, so I'm just going to spell it for my podcast listeners. It's like I-L-E-A-L-A-C-R-O-S-S with an E. It's one of the oldest Roman Catholic missions in the Canadian West, the history of residential schooling at the mission is long and complex in 1776. A Montreal-based trading company established a post at this place in Saskatchewan. And the Hudson's Bay Company then also opened a post there in 1799. Um, anyway, so much great history here. 
that I encourage people to learn, but you know, very demeaning, sad conversation about Métis in general, um, and then also um, what they thought of them. And then they have some beautiful pictures of uh, some of the places that, um, like I, I've never uh, seen some of these pictures before actually, and uh, highly recommend that folks see them. The Calgary Indian Industrial School football team, James Gladstone in the middle. I'm sure if I went back to the Glenbow, I could see them, but it's been so long since this is a stupid pandemic. I hate this pandemic. Really spooky pictures too. Um, Evan Rita Evans went to Barad, Alberta school for four years, religious instruction and drudge work and a very little emphasis on classroom education loom large in her memory of the school. Just some spooky pictures of all of the residential schools that they once had that were clearly wood, not brick, and um, obviously burnt down so many of them. Uh, chapter five, Métis residential school education in the north, and they talked about the Yukon Hotel, um, Northwest Territories. So that again, this is more where my family's from. But you have to remember that because Alberta and Saskatchewan weren't created until 1905, a lot of the Northwest Territories is still actually just the West in general. So you have to be very specific. In uh, 1933, the three Roman Catholic schools, one being in Fort Providence and the two Anglican, uh, were housing 37 female. That would be my, um, oh no, 1933 was when my granny was born. So not for two more years. Anyway, it talks about the stats here. It was decided then that the female students would be kept in the schools until they reached the age of 18. Until that point, they had been discharged, discharged at the age of 16. You have to understand it was really, um, I didn't understand how my, my granny had a grade nine education, but was there from the age of uh, 18 months to 18 years old. I didn't understand it, um, but it was because I was unaware of federal policy that was there. Um, not until before. Racial attitudes were long lived in the 1935 assessment in which non-Indian student, non students attended residential schools in the Northwest Territory should be provided with support. As Assistant Depu Deputy Minister of the Interior um, R.A. Gibson wrote of a 13-year-old boy attending the Shingle Point School. In his view, his partial white blood is to be probable and he would benefit from schooling than a full-blooded Eskimo and therefore should be kept in school until he reaches the maximum age of 14 years. Enforcing um, attendance is also a problem and uh, they asked in 1941, Bishop Brainett asked Ottawa to implement compulsory attendance for whites and especially those half-breeds in the territory saying half-breed parents did not understand their duty to provide a sound intellectual and moral training for their children it was pointed out to him that the territorial schools or uh, required parents of children between seven and 12 to send their uh, child to school for a period of at least 16 weeks in each year blah 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 anyway lots of information here about the federal government policy as well as provincial policy uh, chapter six, provincial responsibility from 1940 to 1960. Um, then chapter seven, the students speak. 
Um, yeah, there's so much to read here, but it's just a short read. Um, conclusion and calls to action. So it's only 54 pages, including pictures. And then after that, uh, the conclusion and calls to action um, is not even half a page. So the Métis experience of residential school has been overlooked for too long. It is important to recognize that Métis children attended residential schools both in southern and northern Alberta, Canada. Um, federal government policy on Métis attendance was never consistent or consistently applied. Even those that, even during those periods in which the federal government sought to ban Métis children from the schools, church leaders continued to recruit Métis students because provincial governments and school boards were often unwilling to build schools in Métis communities or to allow Métis students to attend public schools. Métis parents who wished to have their children educated often had no choice but to send them to a residential school. In Northern Canada, the hostel system uh, that was established in the 1950s placed no restrictions on, on the admittance of Métis children. From the 1950s onward, many Métis children attended residential schools that were operated by provincial governments in Northern and remote areas. The student experience would have varied according to time and place as it did for all students who attended the schools. There's no denying the harm that was done to the children, the parents, and the Métis community was substantial. It is an ongoing shame that this damage has not been addressed and rectified. To address these issues, the Commission has issued the following two calls to action in its summary report. 29. We call upon the parties, and those in particular the federal government, to work collaboratively with plaintiffs not included in the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement to have disputed legal issues determined expeditiously on an agreed upon set of facts. We call to action 46. We call, upon, we call upon the parties of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement to develop and send a covenant of reconciliation that would identify principles for working collaboratively to advance reconciliation in Canadian society, and that would include, but not be limited to, reaffirming the parties committed to reconciliation, repudiation of concepts used to justify in European sovereignty over Indigenous lands and peoples, such as the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius, and the reform, uh, reformation of laws governance structures and policies within their respective institutions that continue to rely on such concepts. The full adoption and implementation of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is the framework for reconciliation, support for the renewal or establishment of treaty relationship based on a principle of mutual recognition, mutual respect and shared responsibility for maintaining those relationships in the future enabling those excluded from the settlement agreement to sign on to the covenant of reconciliation and lastly enabling additional parties to sign on to the covenant of reconciliation and then of course uh, quite a few pages of notes so you know an incredibly important conversation to have about the metis experience because metis have sacrificed so much as well and um, have been discriminated against and seen upon as uh, illegitimate, um, not um, as resistance fighters, and then 
um, for lateral violence, you know, not Indian enough or too Indian, depending on which demographic they're uh, trying to work within. So, so much to unpack there. I hope you enjoyed having this quick conversation about the book. I wish I could have showed you the entire video, but, um, you know, I respect my members and their wishes. And I definitely um, am grateful that there's healing involved by not necessarily sharing somebody's story that's not ready to be shared with. So um, I strongly encourage folks to consider joining our club so that that way you can hear it firsthand because those that got to hear from our one speaker um, were obviously given something that our folks who listen to my podcast are unable to hear in depth. Um, I'm proud of this podcast that it has given solutions and continued uh, included cultural safety training or maybe cultural first aid and almost all of them to create a safer space for indigenous people of color those with a disability and lgbtq plus to speak thank you to author cheryl ward chelsea branch and alicia fritkin of here to help.bc.ca about what is indigenous cultural safety and why i should care about it their work along with those cultural action tools I've said a hundred times in my podcast. So support Indigenous work as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat it here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence that marginalized folks experience. Um, RacialEquityTools.org has a great piece by Donna Bevins about what is internalized racism. If you see racism, happening um what you need to do is some cultural first aid training and do's and don'ts by bystander intervention of american friends service committee has a good outline but if you were to google it you would find so many resources today um if you're in alberta and you experience racism you can report it at act to end racism.ca or text at 587-507-3838 indigenous have been talking about our issues sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and in public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with Gender Equity Plus, the cutting violence prevention programs and services, Indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, a lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, and folks with disabilities, Know that your vote to that party or person directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform and violence prevention. And now we have 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing racism in the educational and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. They don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism. They literally have zero business training. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. Great article. I said out loud is uh, truth before truth, how non-Indigenous Canadians become allies. If you were to Google it, you would find oodles of information. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talked about today and want to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll free 
open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also use their uh, texting option on their website at hopeforwellness.ca. If related to missing or murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. It is also a toll-free 24-7 crisis line to provide that support. For non-Indigenous, there are distress, distress center lines in your area and usually a functioning 211, or you can call 833-456-4566 uh, if you're in Alberta and you're a part of the 60 Scoop, there is a resource for you, ssisa.ca. You can look for hashtag survivor driven. Also, the Trevor Project has uh, tons of resources at lifevoice.ca life for LGBTQ2+, from trans to youth to um, uh, different peer support. There's also the Kids Help Home at 1-800-668 6868. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. Many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, and we've been excluded for years. <sighs> we have constant surveillance, our protests, our vigils, our rights microaggressions that we have to deal with every day on the bus at work. Then there's people dealing with internalized racism. Some people who become gatekeepers or survive off the status quo. Internalized and externalized racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. Thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, always drank looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. Just through her, I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. I recommend if you never identify as a native Calgarian, though, unless you are indeed native. Thank you, Darcy, for producing and editing the show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, and the father of a child, you have supported my journey down the red road and has witnessed decades of racism and sexism to our child who we are blessed to learn from daily. I'm honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. And I hope one day my family will be proud of us trying to discuss this. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you previous donors for showing your support. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. And I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe and nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And I want to end by giving a side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin responds, are you being my dish? <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>